This is the Untold Civil War Podcast, and today we will be learning the story of Rosie the Riveter's Civil War Grandmother. It's all hands on deck. With the men off fighting the war, the women, north and south, would work in the arsenals to produce the war material needed for their husbands, brothers, and sons to win on the battlefield. Before we get into that, I want to thank my sponsor, The Badge Maker. More on him later. I also want to thank my patrons on Patreon. This is impossible without your support. And now, hear the factory whistle. It's time to get back into some untold civil war. Welcome to the Untold Civil War. Today I'm sitting with Raina Egan, who will be discussing women in Civil War arsenals. The Rosie the Riveters of the Civil War, if you will. She's written a book on this truly untold topic. Do we have a publishing date? Not yet. I'm still trying to shop around for a publisher. I've gotten a few rejection letters and a few proposals in, but that's been about it. Oh, okay. Well, you know what? That's the world of publishing, right? The world of book writing. Um, we definitely do have to yep. get this story out there eventually, though. And, you know, hopefully by coming on the podcast, we can spread spread some of the uh, the news about this topic. So thank you for coming on. Thanks for having me. Well, I think we should just kick it off. So did women work in arsenals both north and south? How did that work? Uh, yes, there were women who worked in arsenals both north and south. There were, you know, the government-run ones. And in the south, there were the ones that came under Confederate control when we seceded. And, of course, there were some uh, on both sides that were begun out of need or they ramped up production out of need. And in my book, I kind of refer to arsenals as not only uh, the government-run ones, but also the armories like Springfield, Massachusetts, or Samuel Jackson's factory in Philadelphia, uh, one of those places that kind of sprang up out of need. Right, right. And could you explain just for our, our listeners what exactly you know, when we talk about arsenals, what, what are those? What is that? Basically, they were places for these purposes. They usually refer to the ones run by the government, where weapons and ammunition and usually military accoutrements were made and stored. Uh, I know you mentioned some. Do, do, you have, do we have names and locations of some of these arsenals? Are there still some around that we can see? On the northern side, you have Allegheny Arsenal near Pittsburgh, uh, which is what the bulk of my work's about. There seems to be the most information out there on that. And there's also Washington Arsenal, which is now Fort Wesley McNair. And there's Watertown up in New York. No, sorry, in Massachusetts, rather. Watervliet is the one that's in upstate New York. And down south, you had uh, the Confederate States Laboratory on Browns Island in Richmond. And you had Jackson Arsenal in Jackson, Mississippi, and the Fayetteville Arsenal in Fayetteville, North Carolina. Those are just a few examples on both sides. Right. And so these were operating before the war as well, or did these start up when the war started? Uh, for the most part, they were operating before the war, some as far back as almost the founding of the nation, uh, War of 1812, wow. that era. But before the war, there's all men working there, right? For the most part, yes. 
they did have some women working at some arsenals. I'm trying to pin exact numbers, but it was nowhere near the amount of women that would come to work during the war. The war kicks off and what happens? The men end up enlisting and so they need these arsenals to be operating, right? So that's when the women step up. Is that how that happened or? Uh, yeah, sometimes they advertise uh, the people running arsenals advertised in newspapers uh, need for girls and women in particular to come work for them. And in at least the case of the Allegheny Arsenal, all uh, woman or young girl needed to work there was a few uh, personal references like from the local minister or neighbors or whomever. And indeed, it, it did appeal to a lot of women because it was something they could do for their country, something patriotic. And uh, you have a lot of women who were either immigrants themselves or their parents were, and it gave them a chance to kind of prove their loyalty to the country. But probably the biggest motivator was they needed the money. Mm, wow, yeah. So many men. Right, right. And I imagine like you sort of mentioned that there were like a small number of women working in these factories before the war, but, um, you know, not a large amount. So a lot of these women probably didn't know how to operate in these factories, sort of like, you know, on the job training. Yeah, pretty much. And for the most part, uh, their duties in the arsenals were in the assembly of cartridges. And occasionally uh, you had women who also were seamstresses who sewed powder bags for artillery. And sometimes they did piecework by manufacturing parts of uniforms. Uh, but for the most part, it was in the assembly of cartridges. And I kind of have the process uh, broken down. The process of making cartridges comes from the ordinance manual for the use of officers of the U.S. Army. So it was kind of the official handbook on how to make cartridges. So in what was called the cylinder room, uh, the, well, mostly women who worked there, uh, they rolled uh, one of two pieces of cartridge, one of two pieces of paper around what was called a former, which was basically a pointed wooden stick and they rolled that piece of paper into a cylinder. And then they did what was called choking the, the paper by tying the pointed end closed and then putting the, usually the Manet ball or whatever projectile they were using on that end. And then they'd wrap the whole thing up with a second piece of paper. And then they would take out the former and the pieces of paper in a box and when those boxes were filled, men who were working there moved them to the filling room. And in the filling room, the women who worked there used a funnel to pour a pre-measured amount of powder into each cylinder. And they would gently tap it on the table to settle it down. And then they would flatten the other end by folding it up. And then they would put the finished cartridges into wooden crates on their side until there were 100 cartridges in each box. 
and then the were carried to a whole other building to be bundled for obvious reasons you didn't want the uh powder room near the cylinder room right and so in the cylinder room usually the youngest and smallest girls and a good number of young boys too were put to work by making percussion caps by pouring a small amount of what was called mercury fulminate which was basically a mix of mercury nitric acid and alcohol and they would put uh, 12 caps into paper tubes and then fold up the ends and basically uh, that's how women were involved in the assembly of cartridges. All this talk about producing cartridges makes me think of the Minet Ball. What's a more iconic symbol of the Civil War than the bullet known as the Minet Ball? Or the Mini Ball? Well, sponsor and good friend of the show, The Badge Maker, has one with your name on it. Go on and order a musket ball watch fob cast from real lead from his website, www.civilwarcorebadges.com. General Ripley of the Ordnance Department said that it's the only other use of ammunition that he approves of, and General McClellan said there is no greater way to display one's martial prowess. Link will be in the show notes. Wow. Wow. And, you know, the whole time you're telling us this, I'm thinking about this is dangerous work, (laughs) you know, around all this ordnance and such. Do we hear of any sort of disasters or any of these uh, women getting hurt while doing this? Oh yeah, the bulk of my work talks about primarily three of the best-known uh, explosions that took place in arsenals during the war. There were a good many of them, some fatal, some not, but the three that I talk about the most is Allegheny Arsenal. Again, uh, that's the one we seem to find the most information on. Browns Island in Richmond and uh, Washington Arsenal in D.C. Those are kind of the three best-known ones that I talk about in the book. Well, can you tell us uh, sort of what happened at these arsenals that caused these disasters or what exactly those disasters were? Okay, I'll start with uh, Allegheny Arsenal, kind of the best-known out of the three. To this day, no one's quite sure what caused that explosion. It was actually a series of three different explosions that kind of happened in rapid succession. There's a few theories that have been put forth over the years. Uh, The one I pretty much subscribe to is that it was either a horse's shoe or an iron wagon wheel touching off some loose powder that was in the roadway near the one laboratory which first exploded. How did the powder go out into the roadway? Well, there's several ways it could have happened. For one thing, they would use and reuse and re-re-reuse wooden barrels over and over again until they weren't very tight fitting anymore. And you'd have powder leaking all over the place when you'd transport it. And also, uh, during the day, they were supposed to uh, sweep up the powder and either reuse it if it was clean enough to do or throw it in the uh, little pond that they had near the powder magazine to get it wet. It was against regulations for powder to be swept outside onto the macadamized roadway that they had, but it apparently happened. 
And also, it's been said that during the construction of that stone roadway, uh, the workers were drawing a lot of sparks with their hammers. But when one of the superintendents of the lab, Alexander McBride, who was a super by trained, he was also one of the ones who complained about the leaky barrels. When he went to his superior, Colonel John Symington, about maybe laying down some sand or some tar paper, I think it was, to kind of create less sparks, that was refused. So there was also the theory that's been put forth that it was static electricity that it caused it from the women in their dresses and their hoops and everything causing static electricity. But the most likely theory is probably the either the horseshoe or the wagon wheel touching off the spark. Uh, basically what happened that day, September 17, 1862, there was a delivery driver making his rounds, uh, delivering barrels of powder to the lab that day. And one of his helpers was helping him get the barrels off the wagon and onto the porch. And for reasons unknown, apparently the helper, or named Robert Smith, had jumped up on top of the barrel. And the first of several explosions happened and Smith was blown to pieces. And uh, that was the first of a series of explosions. Wow. And then the second explosion was probably a chain reaction from that. And that was what set the laboratory on fire. And there were roughly uh, 158 workers, I believe, the vast majority of them women and girls working there. And soon thereafter, there was a third explosion. And basically, they're trying to get these uh, workers out. There were some that tried rushing the stairwell or jumping out of windows, and the workers had brought up their own fire engine. There were also a couple uh, local Pittsburgh fire engines that responded to try to help put out the fire, and they also kind of formed a bucket brigade going from the pond that they had. And by the time that settled, there were 78 workers who died, uh, 70 of them female. Wow. Jeez. That is rough. Was this what happened to the other arsenals as well? This some sort of similar thing? Well, in the case of Browns Island in Richmond, most accounts of what happened that day, March the 13th, 1863, um, it was believed a young worker by the name of Mary Ryan, 18 years old, native of Ireland. She was working on a friction primer that got stuck to her varnishing board. So she's trying to free it and basically she's banging it off the table, trying to get it loose. And after a couple times of her banging it off the table, the primer goes off and it shoots her up to the ceiling and oh. that's what causes that explosion and in the end there were roughly uh 50 people who died again the majority of them women and girls um one i believe as young as eight and the oldest is 70. wow that's tragic that i think that goes back to kind of what i was saying about you know learning on the job 
you know, no official training, you know. So this was uh, this was rough work for sure. And so the other workers, these women who, you know, were killed in these explosions. And do we have sort of accounts of these women? Do we can we put a, a face or uh, to, or a name to some of these women or are these just faceless heroes? Some of them I've been trying to get as many as much information as I can about them. But of course, the vast majority of them are working class. Um, I've been looking through census records, newspapers, and things like that to try to at least get uh, ages, family details, neighborhoods they lived in. And in the case of those who survived, sometimes you'll see uh, little blurbs in the newspaper of, uh, in the case of Allegheny Arsenal, uh, memorial reunions and things like that. But for the most part, there isn't a whole lot of information on them. I'm hoping that one day that we'll come across a diary or letters or something from some of these women. Yeah, uh, that, hopefully, hopefully. So basically, you're basing all of this research on newspaper articles and things like that, right? Yeah. Although a few years ago, we did finally get to see the first photograph of one of the victims of the Allegheny Arsenal that we're aware of. Uh, oh, wow. She was a young girl by the name of Fridolina Neckerman. She was 17 when she died. Apparently, her hand was identified severed among the rubble uh, mm. by an engagement ring on her finger. Do you have that picture? Um, I have a copy of it, yes. I'll send it to you. Oh, for sure. I would love to see that. That would be great. Yeah, that came about from her great 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 nephew i believe uh via ancestry and then that made its way to the local historical society who wrote an article about as much as we know about her and her family her father was kind of a chief clerk there i believe he was a native of germany what about her you said it was an engagement ring so her fiance do we know anything about him Trying to find more information about him, he was a young man by the name of William Corning. He was a saddler by trade, and apparently soon after her death, in his grief, he went and joined the army and it ended up dying in battle in Virginia. I'm still trying to find his specific unit and whatnot there. This is a very tragic story for this family. But uh, since this is like, like you mentioned, the only photograph that uh, you were able to find or anyone has been able to find, really, how did you find the story? I follow the Lawrenceville Historical Society on Facebook and everything else. And uh, that's what came across the feed one day. I think it was the great, great, great nephew who somehow got in touch with uh, one of the people there and ended up sending that photograph in and then did some digging and found out as much as they could about her and the family and wrote an article about it. And as far as this subject goes, it was pretty huge. Are you a listener of this podcast who wishes you could ask the featured experts your own questions? Maybe you own a history-related business. Maybe you reproduce the best brogans and sack coats on the market. 
Maybe you have several artifacts that need a new home. Become a patron on Patreon and I will happily give you access to the experts and or advertise your products to this wonderful history community. Please check out the Patreon page, link in the show notes, for more details. Well, but what about just finding out about women working in arsenals? What drew you to that story? Well, I think I first heard about the Allegheny Arsenal when I was in high school. I think it was just uh, kind of a blurb in the local newspaper about uh, the explosion happened in 1862. Not too many people know about it. And then once I was in grad school, I took the Civil War course, naturally, and uh, we had a big research paper, and I started doing some work on that. And then I realized that the Allegheny Arsenal wasn't the only deadly explosion. So I talked about that as well as Browns Island and Washington. And then sometime after I got my master's, I thought, well, as far as I know, there isn't really a book out there about all of this, so I should start on one. And that's what I've been doing for about the last 10 years. And now we need to get it published. That's the goal here. I would love to. (laughs) And then hopefully I can get a signed copy. Of course. (laughs) Well, do we know if by women working in these factories did this change any sort of social norms after the war or anything like that any change was short term pretty much there's the counts uh, before the war even ended that women should leave their jobs and go back home and after the war of course there wasn't nearly as much need for women in working in arsenals but you don't really start to see any big sweeping changes until probably the next few decades once there's more immigration and more women going to work in both blue collar and white collar types of jobs. And of course, in World War I, where I'm starting to expand my research on women who worked in ammunition plants during that conflict, and of course, the rotation of World War II, Eventually, I hope to get a book about them as well. You don't really see any big social changes up until probably turn of the century into World War I, where, of course, one of the uh, reasons that women got the right to vote was due to their work in the war effort. Right, right. Why do you think that this story of women working in arsenals, I mean, this is a big deal. You know, the armies can't fight without uniforms, without ammunition. How does this story end up falling in the realm of untold civil war? There's a lot of people in the Pittsburgh area who have lived there their whole lives who don't know why this uh, little park in the Lawrenceville neighborhood is called Arsenal Park. The powder magazine that existed from the beginning of Arsenal is still there. It's the only pre-war building there that still exists. And now it's a restroom and a maintenance shed for the park. Where the lab used to be is now a baseball field, which is next to a playground. There's pretty much a plaque beside the park. And there's a middle school on the grounds nearby, but named Arsenal Middle School. But otherwise, a lot of people have 
little to no idea of what happened there. Do you think that's because people have, you know, when they study the Civil War, they just want to study the battles or something like that? Or Might be part of it. Um, of course, when I got into the Civil War, when I was a kid, uh, I started, as most people do, probably with battles and generals and all that stuff. I came into it largely by watching the Ken Burns series with my sister late one night. That's kind of how I got into history as a kid. Uh, but then I started learning more about the uh, women who got involved in different ways. And then, as I said, once I got to about high school, I learned about these working women and how little known they were. And I just wanted to keep that going. And I hope to keep that going. Oh, fantastic. Yeah, no, for sure. We definitely need this story to come out. I always like to promote books on the topic, obviously, that, uh, you know, we want your book to be published and we want people to buy your book. But in the meantime, if they need to find something in the meantime, do you recommend any uh, other books or anything like that that's on the market right now? Uh, yeah, there's a few. There's one that's kind of geared more toward a young adult audience, but I think it's useful for everyone. It's called Gunpowder Girls by Tanya Anderson. Um, there's also Army at Home by Judith Giesberg. She has a chapter or two about uh, both Allegheny Arsenal and Washington Arsenal in great detail. And there's also The Washington Arsenal Explosion by Brian Bergen. And there's a couple of books by James Wodarczyk. Uh, he's written a lot about the Allegheny Arsenal, one of them being called Pittsburgh's Forgotten Allegheny Arsenal, and another one entitled Until the Morning Cometh. Yeah, those are basically a couple of the books that go into detail about those. Fantastic. And of course, where can people learn more about you? Uh, go ahead and plug yourself for the uh, audience here. And if they have any other questions, I'm sure they can reach out, right? Of course. Okay, so on Facebook, uh, my page is called In the Midst of Youth and Beauty. Uh, that's the title of my book, once I finally get it out. And on Instagram, I'm Raina, R-A-I-N-A, dot G, dot Egan. And on Twitter, I'm Raina Kellerman. So follow me one of those places, follow me all those places. Fantastic. Fantastic. And I'm going to put links uh, in the show notes so people can access that, of course. You know, we're coming up on that time now. Thank you so much for uh, bringing light to this untold story. I appreciate you coming on the podcast. I appreciate you having me. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to this episode while you grilled steaks, soaked up the sun on the beach, hunting Mosby, crossing sabers with Kilpatrick, or whenever you listen to podcasts. Like us and follow us on social media. Give us a five-star review on iTunes if so inclined. Big thank you again to Craig Duncan for the use of his music. Please tune in next time for our next episode.